0: Howdy folks, welcome to Bad GM's Campaign Build Along. I'm the Bad GM, Wayne Davis, and this is the show where we build an entire campaign from scratch for you to run for your group no extra charge. This season we built a campaign using the Deadlands Classic rules, and I hope what we built for you was as entertaining to run as it was to build. I should note that if you're new to this program, you're going to need two books if you want to run what we've built, the Player's Handbook and the Marshall's Guide. And if you can't find them at your local used book or game shop, you can pick up PDF copies of both of those from the Pinnacle Entertainment Group's website, P E G I N C. Com. With our campaign build finished and the postmortem completed, this week's show is all about my group finishing the campaign. After that, we'll do a post-mortem on how I thought it went when I ran it. Once that's done, I've got a couple of suggestions for one-shots you can run if you're looking for ideas to tide your group over until we start building our next game in season two. Before I get into all of that, I do need to go back and make a correction on something I said during last week's episode. While I was lamenting my choices of names for the NPCs in the game, I mistakenly called one of the board members the Gingerbread Man. Gabe so very politely reminded me that I'd actually named that character the Muffin Man, which is, in my opinion, even worse. So let me remind you again to take the time to think out the names you give your NPCs, your towns, etc., etc., Okay, so before we actually discuss what my group did in his last session, we have to recap what they did in the session before. The group had been waiting for the reinforcements that had been promised to the now deceased Shelby Green, and they'd loaded up the quad in front of the church with dynamite. 14 gunslingers approached the quad on their way to the church, and most of them got blown up by either Gabe or Jim shooting dynamite. A couple of them threw bottles of nitro at the church, and while it blew off the front of the church and damaged Gabe in the fall, that was the extent of the damage. With the fight over, the The group was trying to decide just how they were going to find Kate Sinclair. It was at that point that Clayton pointed out to them that she told him she was headed for Kansas City. So the group decided to head that way by train. They made it all the way to Lawrence, Kansas, since that's as close as they could get to KC by train, then took off on horseback for their destination. Before they could get there, they noticed two figures on horseback being chased by 20 more on horseback. They figured out pretty quick this was Kate Sinclair and Alexis Mendez, and through a judicious use of dynamite and firearms, they took care of all the attackers. They brought Sinclair up to speed on what was up, and while she didn't initially believe them, being reunited with her mother and seeing the documentation they had on Stewart changed her mind. And she didn't seem overjoyed to see her mother again, and I played it like she has abandonment issues. Sinclair took them to see the Sioux Shaman Pathfinder, who told them that the most likely place for Ed Stewart to try a ritual involving the blood of relatives would be in Triumph, So the group headed that way with a stop off in Dodge City for Sinclair to pick up a few items, including a Gatling gun. Now the group didn't want Sinclair to go, noting that taking what Stuart wants to him would be a bad idea, but as we ended the session, I was playing it like she wants to take the shot that kills her brother. We ended the night on that discussion. So as we picked up, the group was still trying to talk Sinclair out of going to Triumph with them. We got back into that discussion and she ultimately agreed to do so. She also allowed them to keep the Gatling gun she'd brought out, but said something about being the one who would avenge them if and when they died. The group went back and forth with her on this one, again reminding her how stupid it would be for the very thing Ed Stewart was looking for to go to him. That actually never got resolved in a discussion. We more or less went with it. However, one of her last comments to the group was the suggestion to use a stagecoach full of dynamite and nitro to take out Stewart. Note that, because it's going to come into play in a few minutes. Oh, and at this point, I do have to note that Clayton was not a part of this session. Unfortunately, work prevented him from playing, so I had to NPC his character. As they took off, at the halfway point of their trip from Dodge to Triumph, the group met the advance party of six that was left to meet them. Rather than riding up on them, they got to the appropriate gatling gun distance, then let Tyler take the group out with that gun. That was good for Tyler, who'd been dying to actually get to shoot something, but not so good for the bad guys, since they got taken out before they could act. Note this battle when I mention later about giving the group too much stuff. The group made their way successfully to Triumph, then took a moment or two to check out what was, or more specifically, what wasn't, still standing. After that, they devised their plan to approach the mine. Something I have to note here is we spent a lot of time going over this because Jim had issues visualizing how the mine was laid out, but we ultimately got that worked out and the plan worked out like this. The group would split, with Tyler, Gabe, and Clayton's character, played by me, taking the wagon and the Gatling gun and sticking to the ground above the mine, heading to the right side, and drawing any and all possible fire. Again, the Gatling gun worked well, taking out four of the seven people I put in place for this purpose, and showing the rest of the group where the other three were. The rest of the group headed across the left side above the mine and dealt with those shooters rather quickly. Now, at this point, we have to back up a half a step and discuss something I mentioned at the end of last week's episode. Aniston had some ghost rock and he wanted to build something with it. I determined that with the amount of ghost rock he had and the time that he would have been able to have, he'd have been able to construct three sticks of ghost rock dynamite, which I determined did triple the damage of a regular stick. He was also able to construct a small-ish spider creature he could use to walk something somewhere. Couldn't control it necessarily, but he could sit it down and walk the heck out of it going straight. So, let's get back to the task at hand. After much discussion, it was determined that Aniston would strap the ghost rock dynamite to the spider creation of his and let it go in and blow up the mine and hopefully anyone within it. However, they wisely decided that someone would need to scope out the mine first to see where Ed Stewart and his minions were. Checking stats, I realized Clayton's character would be the best choice, and rolling exceptionally well, got a 45 on his sneak, he was able to get in without being seed or heard and was able to mentally map out the mine. When he got back out, he relayed the information, including the multiple twists and turns. So with that new information in hand, Aniston realized he was going to need to take the spider in and let it go after the last curve because it wouldn't be able to maneuver around and could potentially blow up early and cause an issue. Tyler decided he was going to go along for help, noting that his character has a death wish. Yeah, I'd forgotten to play that. We'll get to that in a minute. In finishing up the prep, Aniston put three regular sticks of dynamite into his bundle and wrapped it around some nitro. A fuse was also used as a backup in case the nitro didn't release and blow the dynamite. Next up, the three had to sneak back into the mine. The rolls for this were successful and they got to the final straightaway without incident. Aniston lit the fuse and let the spider go. I made a roll behind the screen to see if it went straight. No problem, it went straight. Once they let it go, they had to run in order to get out of the mine before it collapsed. Now, before I get to those rolls, it should be noted that the rest of the group decided to move back well away from the mine before this started because, well, because they're smart enough to know that this might not end well. So, I had Aniston and Tyler make rolls to get out and I made one for Clayton. What they didn't know was that the target number was 18. Aniston got a 19, Tyler a 42, and Clayton got a 25. From a cinematic standpoint, here's how I described it. Clayton actually started running out before the spider was let loose, as Tyler was there to deal with anything that might come up during the last moment. He got to just about the first turn in the mine when Tyler basically forced Gumped his way past him. And for the record, the group did the on your left line from Captain America to describe how they saw it going. Tyler got out of the mine well before the explosion with Clayton coming out a bit after him. Aniston, on the other hand, was still running when the explosion happened, with the concussive force of the blow throwing him clear of the mine entrance and face first into the ramp leading down into it. For the visual of the explosion itself, since the bundle Aniston sent in would do 39d20 damage, I described it as the implosion explosion of the nuclear bomb tests in the desert back in the day. You can Google search those and YouTube search those if you'd like. And for those who insist on actually rolling, Gabe did that very thing and it did almost 1000 points of damage. So, needless to say, Ed Stewart and his minions were basically vaporized in the explosion. With Ed Stewart taken care of and their mission complete, the group discussed their next move. Tyler decided his character would go back to Missouri with his original mission having been completed. The rest of the group decided to stick around and rebuild Triumph, and they discussed the basics of doing that very thing. We didn't get too deep into it, but far enough along that they had a basic idea of what they were going to do. And that's how we ended our campaign. So, with Ed Stewart dead and another campaign wrapped up, I wanted to do like we did last week and do a post-mortem. This time, I wanted to look at how the game went from the perspective of running it rather than building it. Much like last week, I'm sure I'm going to be a lot harder on myself than I probably should be, but my hope is that you learn from what I did so that you can make your game even better. But before I proverbially rip myself a new one, let's check out the things I thought went well with the group. The very first thing I'd note is there was a really good dynamic with the group. Despite the differences in ages, since my players range in age from 18 to 49, everyone really seemed to gel well as a group. And I've been in enough groups over 40 years of role playing to appreciate when I've got a group that gets along as well as this group did. Even with Jim needing to drop out for a bit, the arrivals of Tyler and Clayton, the fact that Aniston is Jim's son, the overall dynamics stayed the same, with everyone willing to laugh and joke with each other, and nobody taking the actions of others in the group personally. It was just understood that players make decisions, and while we may not like or agree with them, it's their prerogative. Another positive for me was how the early parts of the game went. I felt like, as a GM, I was in a groove, the NPCs were treated as individuals, I was rolled playing in character with the players, and there was a feel that every interaction was a meaningful one. Again, I've played in enough games where this wasn't the case to appreciate it when it happens. However, as I'll note in a minute, it didn't last. To an extent, I liked the way I was able to think on my feet when my group didn't follow what we'd built out. This happened frequently throughout the campaign, and while I was able to shift a lot faster later on due to having built out more campaign than I needed. Early on in this process, when I was still searching for the major hook for the campaign, it took a lot more effort to come up with things on the fly that not only seemed to work with the storyline, but also not be too much. Now, those weren't all successes, and again, we'll touch on that in a minute. I also felt that this was the first time in a very long time that I was well-prepared for every game session of a campaign. Usually I spend several nights before the game trying to slog through the rule books and my old notes to try to figure out what I'm going to have the group do on a given night. However, this time I had the basics all in front of me and I could focus on the role play, the fights, and the curveballs my group threw at me. Now, most of that can be credited to the fact that I recorded a podcast every week that built out scenarios. I think I've mentioned it before, but I basically used my recording script for this podcast as my game notes for a given session, since I not only had all of the material we'd created, but also the recaps from my group's previous sessions, so I could look back as need be to see what they'd said and where they'd been. So that allowed me to not have to do quite as much prep work, which lowered my stress levels and allowed me to have more fun. And that's the big one for me here. I had fun running this game. Even when my group had me pulling out my hair over decisions they made, I was still having fun. While I've had some fun from time to time in other games, running this game felt more like fun and less like work. Again, I think I have you to thank for that, since if I didn't have a place to build a game and discuss how things were going, I might have needed more therapy than I already get, so thank you. So those are the positives. I'm sure there were more, but those were the ones that came to me the quickest when I was writing the show, so they're the ones that get the love. With the positives out of the way, let's break down the stuff I'm really not so happy about. Going all the way back to character creation, I wasn't happy with the diversity of the characters in this game. Or more to the point, I wasn't happy with the lack of diversity. Pretty much everyone built a variation on a gunslinger. Sure, they had a few differences between them, but they all had guns and used them as their primary method of dealing with things. It would have been nice to have a Blessed, or maybe a Hex Slinger, as it would have brought another level of interesting to the campaign. However, I do have to note that Scott and Jim were the only ones who'd played the game before, so I don't blame the others for not playing the Safer Choices. And look, I don't want it to sound like I blame Jim or Scott for playing what they played either. I just wish we'd had a little more diversity. I don't know how i changed that moving forward, but it's something that kind of just gnawed at me throughout the entire campaign. Now, while I did just say we didn't have a lot of diversity in the characters, I do need to note that Aniston built his character out with the idea of being a mad scientist. However, until the last two sessions, he never really pushed to use any of the abilities associated with that, and instead was basically a gunslinger with the rest of the party. And while I can put some of that on him, I do have to put some of that on myself as well, because I should have been taking into account that he's new to the game and I should have built in some opportunities for him to utilize his skills. I mean, Scott got plenty of opportunities to use his cool skills and Gabe got a lot of chances to gamble. So if I can give them that space, I should have done the same for Aniston and that's on me. Another thing that runs along those same lines is utilizing the backgrounds of the characters. I noted in one of the first episodes of this podcast that I'd had my players come up with backgrounds for their characters. The idea was that I was going to weave in situations where their backgrounds would come into play. And early on, I was working on doing that with Jim's character. However, once he had to drop out, I had to drop that particular character thread. And I never bothered to pick up another one with any other character. Tyler's character would have been perfect for this as his Native American background lent itself to a wealth of possible interactions that I didn't take advantage of. So in the long run, I wasted some of my players' time by having them come up with backgrounds I really never bothered to use. That being said, I did make a few mistakes with those who did have interesting backgrounds, specifically Gabe and Scott. We'll start with Gabe. I've noted on more than one occasion that his character was a pacifist. Now, the definition of a pacifist is someone who doesn't believe in war and would rather negotiate or talk their way out of a fight instead of fighting. Early on, Gabe was playing it the way I thought worked best for the background. However, as I look back on it, I should have had him thinking more about the use of force than I did. Don't get me wrong. Just because he's a pacifist doesn't mean he's going to let someone shoot him down without defending himself. It it doesn't work like that. I just think maybe I should have found a mechanism or created one for him so that he'd have to have that internal debate a little bit more. Again, it would have made for some interesting roleplay, and I missed it because I didn't stay on the ball. Scott's situation was a bit different, and I'll use it to bridge the background issue and the next issue I want to address. He got the ability to speak with the recently dead, and it's an ability he utilized throughout the campaign. So in that way, it's not like I didn't give him plenty of opportunities to use his background. What I did was to not use the power in the way I should have. First off, it shouldn't have been as easy for him to get information as it was, as there's supposed to be roles made to determine whether or not he could even speak with the spirit, since the spirit can choose to not speak with him if it chooses. Sure, there were going to be those times when it was dramatically appropriate to have the spirit choose to speak with him, but in a number of cases, it should have been a lot harder. Also, he was able to get way more information than he should have ever been able to get. Again, those are on me and not him because I didn't hold him to the power the way I probably should have. Now, you can make an argument that I used the spirit of the rules rather than the rules as written, but I'll counter by saying I went a bit far even on the spirit of the rules. Now, that leads me to the point about rules. To be honest, no GM uses all of the rules the way they're written. Heck, a lot of GMs don't use all the rules, period. But I messed up a couple big ones, and they changed the way the campaign worked. The first one was the combat system. I gotta admit, I never quite got the feel for it, so I was kind of making up the rules for how shots hit all along, rather than making sure I understood what the target numbers should be. Or how the hits actually worked. That worked out well for my players, since they probably got a lot of hits they shouldn't have gotten. It also worked with the dynamite as they got way more bang for their buck. However, it also caused them to just carve through the bad guys without any consequences, and without consequences a group might be a bit more willing to run headlong into danger. I also didn't use the healing rules the way I should have, and that again made a difference in how the game worked out true, if I'd used rules as written, it probably would have been a really short campaign, but I'd like to think I'd have softened how tough I made some of those encounters if my group had been having a more difficult time. I'm going to do one more here, then I'm done. I mentioned earlier that I thought I did some really good off-the-cuff things during the campaign. I also did some really lousy ones. See the Gatling gun that I mentioned earlier. I also gave out too much money, especially to Gabe through his gambling. I also totally changed the trajectory of the campaign when I worked the widow situation off the cuff, and I made her into darn near a godlike character. I off the cuffed some stuff in Utah with the Mormons, and that wound up making things easier as well. There aren't too many easy solutions for that, other than to be better aware of what I'm doing and not be afraid to pause the game for a bit if I need to quickly work something out. Anyway, that's the postmortem on my group running our campaign. If I take what I've learned here and apply it in the future, it's worth it. If I keep making the same mistakes, then we've got a problem. We'll see what I've learned when we get into the Fallout campaign. Well, since we've still got some time left, let's talk about the other things you can be doing with your group if you're done with Deadlands but don't want to get into anything long term before we start building the Fallout campaign. For the record, we're about three weeks away from building that campaign since we'll have a couple of setup episodes before we start building. So, if you run something for about four weeks, you'll be in the sweet spot. Keeping that in mind, you've got a ton of good options. You could do what I'm doing with my group, which is to have them create characters, then run the adventure in the back of the Fallout book as an exercise in learning how the game works. For that, you'll want to make sure you've got two copies of each character, because anything they gain during the practice run won't carry over into the campaign. That should take care of a session, maybe two, depending on how much actual game time you get in, so there's another thing you can do to burn some time and have some fun. You could pick up a DD and d adventure and run it. Just have your players create their characters at the lowest level the module requires or if you want to put a spin on it, create enough characters for one for each group member plus one extra, then have them do a blind draw for characters. I sometimes use this method for one-shots to get my players to try new things. Now, sometimes it's not very popular because somebody gets a class they don't like, but I like it for the reason of forcing them to stretch the role-playing wings a bit further than they might otherwise choose to do. Now, here's where I get to plug something that I personally dig and am looking forward to run myself. Adventures in ADHD is a module written for 5th edition by the folks at Awfully Queer Heroes. You can check out the Kickstarter they did for that, and it will take you to their website where you can pick up a PDF to run now and order a physical copy for later. The way it's laid out, it'll take you 3 or 4 weeks to run, possibly, so that's always another good choice. If you're looking for a palette cleanser after everything your group has gone through, Toon is a game I'd recommend. It's initially what I was going to do during the downtime between campaigns is it's just a goofy, fun game where the idea is to see how funny your cartoon character can be. The book's been out of print for more than 20 years, so you're going to have to check out the website for Steve Jackson Games if you want to pick up a PDF, and I highly, highly recommend the PDF, which is a rarity for me, because used copies of the game go for well over a hundred bucks that's why I am varying from my usual go-get-a-copy-someplace. <laughs> I ain't spending 100 bucks. Sorry. Of course, there's always board and card games. I mean, I've got Monopoly games I've never even opened, so playing a game of that would be an okay idea. Well, maybe not okay for my group, because I've got a few people who are way too intense when they play it. But... You know your group and what they might like, so go with what works for you. There are also adventures for Deadlands Classic you could run, and you can pick them up at PEGINC.com in PDF form. It would give your players the chance to keep running their characters, and you the opportunity to run something without having to put a lot of work into it. So as we've seen, the, the possibilities here literally are endless. What's not endless is our show, and we've come to the end of another episode and the conclusion of season one. Next week is the Season 2 premiere, so we're going to build a Fallout role-playing game scenario that go around, and next week I'll introduce you to the game. In the meanwhile, check out our other show, Role Playing History. This week, we're doing a deep dive into the cosmology of D&D, which became more interesting to me the more research I did on it. I will warn you, there's a lot of info dump feeling to it, so have some caffeine and be ready to roll. Role Playing History is available wherever you get your podcasts or from our website, badgmproductions.net. All of the Deadlands classic materials we reference on this show are the trademarked, copyrighted properties of Pinnacle Entertainment Group and are used here for entertainment purposes only. If you're interested in picking up a copy of these or any of their other fine games, check out their website peginc.com. The music we use for the show comes from pixabay.com. Check them out for all your royalty-free, license-free music needs. Bad GM's Campaign Build Along is a production of Bad GM Productions. Check us out on Facebook at facebook.com/ Forward slash gaming, forward slash bad gm prod, Twitter at bad GMP, YouTube, bad GM Productions. You can email us badgmproductions at gmail.com, and online the website is badgmproductions.net. And I should note, we have just picked up a Tumblr account. Just search Bad GM Productions. You'll find us there. It's a brand new account, so we don't really have anything up on it yet, but we're working on it okay next week is the season two premiere yay so join us for the beginning of fallout but that's next week partner until then i'm the bad gm wayne davis and i'll see you at the game table